All right, I'm asking you all to turn with me if you have your Bibles, if you have your smart devices, if you've got the Version app, I would encourage you to download it if you don't have it. Turn with me to Romans 8, verses 1 to 13, and it reads as following. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, if the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. We don't owe this flesh anything. To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I want to focus on verse 13 today. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So pastor has challenged us with a theme for this month, and it is that of game on. I wasn't here last week, but I understand that Pastor Chantal taught an excellent and a practical lesson uh, using the game Connect Four. So for this month, um, for those of you that weren't with us last week and didn't get the explanation, what we're doing is we're using games that we all know and love to help translate the, the gospel and the, and the Bible to you today and for the rest of this month. So we're going to be using different ways that we play games to also share the gospel. Really creative way. I absolutely love the idea. So many of you might not, might not have guessed it by looking at me, but I'm actually, I'm a child of the 70s, the late, late 70s, late 70s to be precise. Uh, so uh, when I grew up, I grew up in a time that was considered a crossover point uh, in the world of games and family entertainment. Right around the time when we were moving from families sitting around board games to playing video games as technology was on the rise. And one of the first video games that I remember that was garnering a lot of attention was actually a fighting game right around my teenage years, early teenage years. And it was a game called Mortal Kombat. See, I got some other babies in the house. Hey, kid, K. So Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat was that the word combat was actually spelt with a K deliberately. But the whole notion of Mortal Kombat, by definition, is fighting to the death. 
It's a physical fight between persons or groups wherein each side is attempting to kill each other. Now the thing that, about Mortal Kombat was that it was a game of first, meaning that from a creativity standpoint, this game was considered, and pardon the pun, it was considered to be a game changer. It was introducing several nuances into the gaming industry. So one of the first nuances was that, unlike that of a board game, the video game had a backstory. So there was an entire plot that Mortal Kombat was based upon. And the backstory, at least the main aspects of it, is really as old as time. It is the story of good versus evil and the battle that ensues between the two. The original version of Mortal Kombat, the first edition, that, the one that I was introduced to, it tells the story of an evil ruler of a realm called the Outrealm. And that realm was in constant turmoil and it was bent on taking over other realms, including the Earth Realm. According to the ancient rules set in place in the game by elders, in order for one realm to conquer another, the first realm had to win a fighting tournament called Mortal Kombat, which takes place in the Earth Realm. And in order to fight in the tournament, each realm had to have a fighter, its best fighter, oppose the other realm's fighter, and whoever won would win the ability to remain free and their people and ultimately their realm would remain free. The Outworld's ultimate champion is the antagonist of the game and that, that player's name was Shang Tsung. And the Earth Realm's ultimate fighter was the protagonist and that fighter's name was Liu Kang. That's the backstory. Now this is the way that the game was played. played. Players battle opponents in one-on-one -on -one matches by selecting characters that they're going to use to represent themselves in the game and they go up against other characters in the game. Each fighter, each character has something called a health meter. So on the screen there would actually be this green bar and it would measure the remaining life or the remaining health of each fighter. The first fighter to win two rounds won the match. Each round is timed if fighters have health remaining at the end of the round, the one with the most round, the most health wins. It's notable that even though there were several characters that you could choose in the game, every single one of those characters had to share a set of attacks. So nobody had exclusive attack modes that was just for them. Every single character in the game had access to the same methods of attack such as the leg sweep, the uppercut. Ultimately, the goal of the game is not just to severely injure the opponent, it is to utterly destroy each opponent, to put each enemy to death in order to survive the mortal combat, resist being conquered, and enjoy your freedom in your respective realm. This is the reason that I feel that, that this game was so appropriate for this message, because every Christian is aware that we are constantly engaged in a battle. And that fight is also between good and evil. It is between holiness and sin. It is between this flesh, this flesh of ours that carries our, our sinful nature and it, it is antagonistic towards everything that has to do with God. And the chapter that we read from this morning makes it very clear that in this process of, of killing this flesh, of putting to death these deeds, which is a process called sanctification, that everyone that calls themselves a believer, everyone that names the name of Christ, is expected to cooperate in the ongoing process of sanctification. In other words, every single believer is being asked to engage in mortal combat.
In order for us to best understand this concept as laid out in the chapter that we read, we have to take a wider glance at the book of Romans overall. Undoubtedly, the book of Romans, or the epistle, or letter to the Roman believers, is considered by many to be the most important letter written to believers. Apostle Paul, in 57 AD, wrote this book in the Greek city of Corinth. And as Chuck Swindoll puts it, he says, it stands as the clearest and most systematic presentation of the Christian doctrine in all of the scriptures. In short, this epistle provides solid foundational truths regarding the salvation of the believer and how the Christian's life is to be lived. Even the, the city where the writing of this gospel took place is important. Corinth, in its early stages of Christianity, if you've, if you've done a little um, reading in, in, in the book of Corinthians, the first and second book, you'll realize that Corinth was one of the churches that had the most spiritually gifted set of saints. But it was also known as a city of gross sexual immorality and idol worship. And so Paul didn't really have to, he didn't really have to look too far to observe how deeply rooted in sin humanity was and how the grace of God was able to miraculously rescue and deliver the most depraved of souls by virtue of the fact that he was writing from a city where many of those souls were residing. And although the Roman church was nowhere near the state of depravity that was the reality of Corinth, the citizens of Rome had not yet met Paul. He had not yet visited them, and so he wrote this letter to them because he recognized that they were in need of the most basic and foundational teaching of the gospel's doctrine, hence his letters to the Romans. So the 16 chapters of Romans um, can best be approached by studying them in sections. Uh, chapters one to three focus on the idea of all men's need for righteousness, Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are people that are not Jews. If you're not of Jewish descent, you would be considered a Gentile. So that really focuses on the need of all men for salvation. Chapters three to four speaks to us about justification through salvation. Justification is one of those words you hear getting thrown around in church that not a lot of people really address, but it simply means being made righteous by your belief in Jesus Christ. Chapters 5 to 8 introduces the inward and outward working of sanctification. Chapters 9 to 11 deals with the Jews in light of salvation, their future and their God. Chapters 12 to 15 covers the application of the doctrine of the Christian life and duty. And chapter 16 rounds everything else out in its conclusion. So I want us today to focus on that third section, the sanctification section. Sanctification, there's the Greek word is hagiasmos in Greek, and it means to set apart for God's use. It means to separate, to consecrate, to purify, and, and to, to be dedicated for the, for the use of, some, of God or something else. And you might be asking, what does it mean for us to put to death the deeds, some versions say mortify the deeds of our body? Quite simply, it means we are putting to death the deeds of our body, which is the instrument through which our flesh operates. And those deeds are listed out in Colossians 3, 5 to 8, when it says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 
So with these things in mind, I have observed at least four things that I postulate we should give our attention to as we engage in mortal combat and as we seek to put these deeds to death. The first point is that number one, your personal victory begins with your total surrender. As believers, we are expected to win not by resisting the process, but by surrendering to the process that God has initiated in our lives. The game is the game. When you're playing the video game, you can't play it according to your own rules. The, this, you, you can't skip steps, you can't avoid requirements. Each fighter has to submit to the process in hopes of becoming a victor. Romans 12 verses one to two says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You present it, you submit it, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Just like the creators of the game were deliberate about how the game is not only to be played, but how it's to be won, God is very specific in how we as believers are best to approach the duty of putting to death the deeds of our body and it requires our submission. It requires our commitment to the process all the way through. Verses seven to nine of, of Romans eight says, because the mind of the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the flesh cannot please God. You, whoever, are not controlled by the flesh, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit, he does not belong to Christ. Just as the characters in the game are subject to the movements of the joystick in the hands of the one that controls it, so are we to subject ourselves to the control of the spirit by whom we are led. How ridiculous would it be for you to be sitting down playing a video game, you're trying to get the player to play, you're moving the joystick in certain directions, trying to work a combination, and out of the clear, clear blue, the character plum decides that it's just going to start doing its own movements. Even as you're moving the joystick, it's doing something completely different than what you're inputting. You would deduce at that point either the game is malfunctioning or there's no connection between the person who's doing the controlling and the one that's in the game. This is how we can see ourselves in our lives and in our relationship with God when we just decide, I want to win the game, but I don't want to submit to the process. I want to be a victor, but I don't want to put to death, the deeds that will keep me from being victorious. I remember there was a point in my life where um, after I got saved, uh, the Lord required me to release some things from my life. And some of the things he required me to release were relationships. There were friends of mine that he was asking me to put aside. And there was my first boyfriend, my first boyfriend that he required of me. And at that time, I was so zealous for the Lord. I was like, yes, Lord, this hurts, but yes, Lord, I, I give these relationships to you and I release them. A few years later, I was involved in another relationship and I heard the Lord speaking to me, asking me to release that relationship. And at that point I was like, but God, this one is saved, but he's a Christian. Lord, he speaks in tongues. I, I can't, I can't do it. And I got, I was really adamant, like, no, God. I, I started to think to myself, and we, now you guys can't look at me like this has never happened to you. Like he's never asked you to do something and you've decided you're just plumb not doing it. We get spiritual about it, don't we? We start telling the Lord, oh, that's the devil. 
That's the devil. I rebuke you, Satan. No, oh, oh, Tabashi. We get all spiritual about these things. But the truth of the matter is he was requiring something of me that I wasn't willing to give. And because I wasn't willing to give it, that relationship soon, it moved from being a relationship to just becoming a situation. It just got, it became a hot mess. And at that point I was like, oh, here God, please take it, please. You can have it, have it all, Lord. But he doesn't want us to wait to that point. He wants us to submit to the process when he tells us. Point number two, be aware of the enemy's tactics. Don't let him wear you out. In the game, the player must fight in three endurance matches, each of which involves two opponents. As soon as a player defeats the first opponent, the second opponent jumps into the arena, and the timer is reset, but the health meter is not. After the third endurance match, the player then has to fight the sub-boss in the game. And if you win that fight, then you have to fight the ultimate enemy in the game, which is Shang Tsung. How many of you have ever been at a time in life where you just feel worn out? Like it feels like if it's not one thing, it's another. If it's not my health, then it's my money. If it's not my money, then it's my family. If it's not my family, then it's employment. There's always something. You have to be aware of the enemy's tactics. Remember when I mentioned that the health meter is a measure of how much health you have left in the game. Once it's drained, that's usually the time when your opponent can move in for the kill. Have you ever just felt worn out? Have you ever gotten to the point where you're like, no Lord, I have been resisting. I've been resisting and now I feel like I just deserve to just give in. I don't want to resist anymore. I don't have the strength to resist anymore and nor do I actually want to. And you just feel like giving up. But there's a little known acronym that I want to introduce to you, to some of you today and reintroduce to the rest of you called HALT that I believe will help to explain how it is that we can recognize or at least prepare ourselves for the attack of the enemy, HALT. H stands for hunger, A stands for anger, L stands for lonely, T stands for tired, HALT. And what the enemy likes to do is he likes to approach us during these times. Now I'm looking at your faces and some of you are like, eh? hunger, what does that have to do? with anything. What does that have to do with the enemy attacking you? Listen, the enemy is very subtle, he's very clever, but he also uses practical means to attack us. I'd like to take to you case in point, Genesis chapter 25, verses 29 and onward, gives us an account of Jacob and his brother Esau. Esau is a man of the field, Jacob is a waste youth, likes to live in tents. Esau is accused of giving up his birthright in a time when he was most hungry, he sells his entire birthright to his brother for a pot or a plate of stew. His in Who gives up their entire birthright? The inheritance of land, of property, your legacy, the ensurement of your future generation's well-being. But this is how the enemy attacks. He's so subtle, he's so slick with it. In the New Testament in Matthew 4, it gives another account. Jesus is driven into the wilderness and he's fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights. And the Bible says in verses one through four that Jesus after 40 days was hungry, rightfully so. Who turns up? Ding dong, here's the enemy ringing his doorbell. What does he say to him? If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. 
challenges him, tempts him. This is actually recognized as a temptation of the Lord. Him being tempted to eat food. And it wasn't that it was the food that he was being tempted to eat. He was being tempted to step outside of what God had asked of him to make provision for himself. That was the problem. That's what the enemy wanted him to do. And so if he can tempt the Lord like that, what makes us think that he won't tempt us in those very practical ways? I remember, um, again, when I was, I was in high school, just, this was probably about a, about a year after I was saved, and one of the things that I was re really well known for was I got, around, I got along with everybody. Got along with all the, if you've been in high school, been in post-secondary education, you know that when you get to high school, there are little cliques little sets of people that form. I was known for getting along with everybody. It didn't matter where you were from. And I had this friend, or somebody, let me correct that. I had this person that I was friendly towards who was in a very unhealthy relationship. So me and some of my friends told her, hey, you know, girl, you need to get out of this relationship. It's not good for you. Do you know that this little girl went and told her boyfriend that we were encouraging her to break up with him, and he sent word back to us that he was gonna get some girls from Malvern to come and beat us up. Y'all, when I tell you I was, oh my gosh, the level of anger I experienced, I was bent out of shape. I chalky cheesed. I was so angry. I was so angry to the point I got up out of my class, went to go find the girl's class that she was in, told her, yeah, we're going outside. Got her out of her class, brought her outside. Cause I'm like, if they're coming to fight me, I'ma fight you first and make it worth it. Because I don't understand how I'm trying to help you and you have people coming to fight me for trying to help you. What I didn't realize was that the enemy was trying to use my anger against me. Because everybody in the school knew that I was a Christian. I was that girl that would sit in the hallway during lunchtime and during break with her Bible open, reading. I used to walk with a little chain. I used to carry a little chain around my neck with the cross on it. And I was known for that to the point where when I was ready to fight this girl, I grabbed the chain from my neck and I tore it off in one swift movement, put it in my friend's hand and said, hold this for me. And I heard some kid in the passing, yo guys, she took off the cross. But what I was doing was a physical illustration of what I was preparing to do spiritually. I was putting Christ aside so I could handle things in my flesh. And that is what the enemy requires of us. Know his tactics. Be aware of how he attacks. Number three, be aware of you. Don't let your own lack of self-awareness contribute to your defeat. In the single player game, the player faces each of the other seven playable characters in a series of one-on-one -on -one matches against the computer-controlled opponents. And that match ends in something called a mirror match. That mirror match is you playing against yourself. So if I was myself, a character, my last match in that, in that round would be me playing against me. This is strategic. Because not only do I know that other players' strengths, I also know that other players' weaknesses. We are asked to do this in our own life. We have to be aware of not only our strengths, but also our weaknesses and how those weaknesses might be exploited. Verse four to five says that those that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, those after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Are you aware of the areas of your flesh 
your carnal and sinful nature that you still tend to give deference to? Are you aware of the areas in your own life that you tend to still turn a blind eye to? You know, those areas of your life that usually result in you going, I don't know what happened. Those areas. Nothing just happens. Everything is a result of decisions that we've made. So you decide that you're going to roll up to a friend's house and you're going to spend some time, I'm just going to go and spend some time with my friend. And the next thing you know, we were talking and having glib conversation. And suddenly I found myself in a prostrate position. I was free and devoid of all of my clothing. I don't know what happened. You rolled up there at nine o'clock at night to have a conversation with a friend? And this is not the first time you've done it? This is habitual? This friend who you all accidentally also have feelings for and we don't know what happened? Well, that rapidly escalated. I was this close, this close to being out of debt and the next thing you know, I'm completely overdrawn in my checking account and my credit cards are all run up. I don't know what happened. Really? You have every shopping app known to man on your phone. You won't come out of the mall. You use every waking hour that you can to scroll through websites, but I don't know what happened. I don't just, I don't know what happened. We know what happens, and if we don't, we need to take the time to examine ourselves. Yes, we have the help of the Holy Spirit, but having the help of the Holy Spirit does not exempt us from self-examination. We have a responsibility to examine ourselves and in light of what we see, bring that before the Lord and submit it to him. Let no one say when he is tempted that he is tempted of God, for God ha has no evil. He cannot tempt man with evil. Anytime that we are tempted, James says in James 1, 13 to 15, we are tempted when we are drawn away by our own lusts when we are enticed by the things that we desire. Know what kind of cheese you like on your trap. Yours might be mozzarella. I might be a blue cheese kind of girl. You might be a cheddar kind of guy. Know what kind of cheese entices you. Be aware of those things because those are the things that if you are not aware of them, they will end up bringing you down. Number four, don't underestimate your assignment or undermine your assignment. You are licensed to kill. Don't be satisfied with a partial victory when you've been equipped and cleared for annihilation. Romans 8.13 says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are promised the help of the Holy Spirit to mortify sins in our bodies. The Holy Spirit provides us the grace to do it, but the final execution belongs to us. Remember when I mentioned the boyfriend thing? That, belonged to, that was up to me. The Lord brought it to my attention, but it was up to me to actually sever that tie. It was up to me to execute that. Sanctification is a cooperative work of God and Christians. Philippians 2, 12 to 13 says that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and with trembling. And it says that God is the one that works in us both to will and to work righteousness according to, to him himself. The Christ-likeness in believers' lives occurs through ongoing transformation by the Holy Spirit and by the word. We cannot play games 
with God and what he has instructed us to put to death. We undermine the assignment and we do great error when we do what is right in our own eyes and we let those things live that God has required we kill. This brings to my remembrance an example in, of, in 1 Samuel chapter 13. King Saul at the time, who was anointed by God, called and chosen by God to lead his people, was given an instruction by God. He was going up against some enemies and God gave him an instruction and told him that he was to end everything that had to do with the enemy. What did that mean? He was to put to death its people, put to death its children, the women, the livestock, the king. Everything was to be put to death. Leave not one thing, not one man, not one child, not one woman, not even the little sheep, and leave them not standing. And Saul took it upon himself to say, I'll, I'll kill most of the enemies, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna reserve this section of livestock here because this looks like a goodly herd. So I'm just gonna reserve this one. I'm gonna keep this one for ourselves. And, and in the meantime, mm, I'm gonna keep the king as well. I'm just gonna keep him alive. He's not, he's not of any help, any, he's not of any hurt to me anymore, not of any injury to anybody anymore. All of his people are dead, but I'm just gonna keep him and some of the livestock. And the Bible said that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Saul because of his disobedience. And because of that, that was the second time that he did something he was not supposed to do. And because of that, not only did the spirit of the Lord depart from Saul in that very moment, but the Bible says that the kingdom was taken from his hands in that moment. He was stripped of his duties as king because of his disobedience, because he refused to put to death what God had required. It is important for us to recognize that God is not asking us to do anything in of our own strength. He says that he has provided the Holy Spirit by whom we are to put to death, to mortify, to kill the deeds of this body. And that reminds me of another of the game's innovations called the fatality. So in the game, a fatality was a finishing move executed against a defeated opponent to, uh, to kill them in the most gruesome fashion. In the game, at the end of the victorious match, just as, an, just as the opponent stands defeated, you have to enter a very specific combination on the joystick very quickly at, while positioned a certain distance from your opponent that would completely annihilate the opponent. Unlike the game where the player is the only one solely responsible for delivering the fatality, this process of killing the deeds of our body is cooperative with the Holy Spirit. Because of that, we don't get to fall into a false sense of self-righteousness. We don't get to say, I can do this on my own. Out of sheer will, out of my strength, and out of my sheer will, out of what I decide to do, I can do this on my own. No, we need the grace we need the empowerment and we need the help to accomplish it. Finally, one of the coolest nuances in the game, at least in the first edition, was the introductory of a secret character. The secret character was one that was hidden for the most part of the game, only present in the background, hidden and invisible to all players, and therefore you actually couldn't access the hidden character in order to play him in, in matches. 
The secret character was only introduced to the main stage of the game after certain conditions were met. In fact, in order to reveal the secret character, you had to earn a double flawless victory, then perform a fatality in a most advanced stage of the game. In the earliest edition of Mortal Kombat, the first secret character actually appeared as a fusion or combination of two other characters. So this character had the ability to use the strength of the two other characters, but moved much faster and also appeared as a separate and distinct character from the two that it had the powers of. I want you to track with me for a second. Stay with me just for a moment. We're going to go back to the synoptic gospel in John chapter 16, verses 7 to 14. Jesus is standing with his disciples and he's explaining to them that he's about to, he's about to get ready to leave this earth. He's about to call it to say bye, adios, it's been good. He's about to ready himself for crucifixion. And understandably, the disciples, they're not having it. They are upset. They're sad. Peter's over there walking and strutting and cussing, you know, upset about the fact that he's going. Thomas, he just doesn't believe anything. He's in complete disbelief. He's like, I can't, I can't even with any of this. So he's gone off. He's upset. John's in the corner wailing. Oh Lord, just sad. Sad about the fact that the Lord is leading. And Jesus utterly collects them and says, listen, it is expedient for you. It's important, it's beneficial for you that I go. Because if I do not, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, Parakletos, the Comforter will not come. And so he instructs them that when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will convict all men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And not only that, but he will take what he has heard from the Lord and he will disclose it to all men. And the Lord says this, he says, for all that is the Father's is mine. And the Holy Spirit will take what is mine and disclose to you. So the Holy Spirit now is going to take what is Jesus's, which really is taking what is God's, and in his possession, he's gonna disclose it to the believer. Remember what I mentioned about the secret character, the fact that he could not be revealed until there was an accomplishment of a double victory and a fatality. In John chapter 19 now, when Jesus is actually on the cross being crucified, our champion, the ultimate Mortal Kombat champion, is facing the enemy of the ages, Satan, in a fight that will determine the freedoms of the inhabitant of this earth and the world to come. And in John chapter 19, verse 28, as Jesus hangs on the cross dying, with the enemy believing his victory to be close at hand, the Bible says that at this point, knowing that everything had been accomplished and to fulfill the scripture, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And, and those that were the Roman centurions that were there, it says that they took a sponge and they dipped it and they lifted it up to his lips. And when he had finished, Brad, I'm going to ask you to come up for it and help me for a second. I, because I need you guys, I need you guys to get the visual of this. So, picture this. All right? The enemy is prepared to receive his victory, to be crowned as what he thinks 
is the champion of this mortal combat. And Jesus is hanging on the cross. Moments from death, all of heaven, all of hell, those that are around Jesus are waiting with bated breath, waiting because it's his death is imminent. And it says that even though they were there, I can imagine that the voice of God from eternity past, knowing that he chose Jesus Christ to be the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, know that the victory really lies in him, that his voice echoes from eternity into the present and says, finish him. And the word says in John 19:30 that Jesus, after having drunk the sour wine, lifts up his voice and says, Tetelestai, which is, it is finished. Now, the enemy thought, surely this is my victory. I have accomplished crucifying the king of this world, the savior of the earth. I've executed him in a great, in a gruesome manner. I've satisfied the conditions of the mortal combat. But what he didn't know is that as Christ hung on the cross and uttered those words, it is finished. What he said, he said in the Greek perfect tense, which is not only was it finished in the past, but it is continually finished and will continue to be finished into the present. So it was not Satan that dealt the fatality. It was not Satan who had the flawless victory. It was Jesus Christ who dealt the fatality, who had the flawless victory. And in doing so, he reveals the secret character, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one by whom we can crucify our flesh, crucify and kill the deeds in our body. Thank you, Brian. I'm coming down, but I want to, I want to say something to you believers. If you are here and you name the name of Christ, if you are here and you are a Christian, if you are here and God has drawn you to himself through Jesus Christ, then you have been given a mandate and I have been given a mandate to put to death the deeds in our body, any and everything that opposes God's will and word in your life. We've been instructed to put it to death. We have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we've been saved by him, we've been justified by him. We are already made righteous. And in doing so, God has already sanctified us. Remember I said sanctification is the process of setting aside, of consecrating, of purifying, of dedicating to the use for God. In the salvation of Jesus Christ, our sanctification is already a completed work. But there is an outworking that we are asked to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to produce in our lives. We are asked to put to death the deeds of our body. And we are asked to do so by the spirit this is not a test this is not a game this is mortal combat